Hey guys, I'm Caleb Giddings, and you're watching a new episode of Gun Day Brunch, brought to you by Guns.com and Taurus USA. If you're looking on information about reliable, affordable firearms for the law-abiding citizen, go ahead and go to TaurusUSA.com, and if you want to purchase one of those guns, you can hit the link right there on the website to take you to Guns.com, order your firearm, and have it shipped directly to your FFL dealer. I want to welcome you guys back to part two of the interview between Melody Lauer and Chris Seipert. If you don't know what's going on, go ahead and go back last week to last week's episode, and you'll get a little bit of background on Chris Seipert, a retired Green Beret, and why you should care about his opinions. Pro tip, you should. As well as some information on Melody Lauer and why you should care about her opinions. Pro tip, you should. All right, guys, that is it for me. I'll be back next week along with the rest of the crew. But for now, I want you to sit back, relax, and enjoy part two of Melody and Chris's conversation. What would you say distinguishes, we kind of got into this a little bit already, but what would you say distinguishes good force on force from bad or even mediocre force on force? Sure. So right up, right up front, something I want to address very, very emphatically and very rarely will you hear me get emphatic. I tend to be, uh, there's, you know, my way is a way it's not the way I've had some, some wonderful mentors that have taught me some great stuff, both in, in special operations and, you know, in the, the uh, open enrollment, uh, private sector. Um, yeah, I don't have the answer. I have a answer and somebody else's slightly different answer, maybe equally or even more valid. But one one area where I am non-negotiable is on, on the aspects of safety. Um, in force-on-force scenarios, uh, we are, you know, we're pointing airsoft guns at each other, but they look and feel like real guns. And, uh, you know, likewise, we're pointing inert pepper spray canisters that spray water at each other, but they look and feel very much like real pepper spray. And every year in America, and between police training and open enrollment force-on-force training, there will be a handful of students injured or killed where um, safety protocols, industry standards were not followed. Um, And so somebody, you know, one of the role players went to lunch, came back, did not get patted down and double and triple checked to remove his, you know, lunch gun from him and then he pulls it out in a scenario and shoots somebody and people think well how could that happen it happens every year in america so uh the biggest thing is if you attend somebody else's force on force training and y'all don't have a sterilization period where like you're patting yourself down and making sure you have no knives uh you know knives guns pepper spray ninja stars bazookas nunchucks anything like that on you and then you're then one of your classmates is patting you down and then you go over and have an instructor pat you down and then maybe have another instructor pat you down uh, and then like everybody's goodies are in a bag that's been put off in an area where like if you go over there, when you come back, you have to get patted down again. And if you go to a class where it doesn't seem borderline ridiculous, the measures they take to ensure that real weapons aren't introduced into the scenario, if it doesn't seem borderline ridiculous, you should probably leave because it's probably not safe and eventually a mistake may happen. So that's that's a big one. Uh, and that's sorry, that's my one of my big soapboxes, but that can't happen. And then um, beyond that, um, I think a big thing is one realistic scenarios and we all know, you know, we, we all scroll on our phones. We all see, you know, we're on our community pages and we know about the robbery that happened down over here, the carjacking that happened at the mall, you know, the town near us. Um, realistic scenarios because, um, you know, putting you in a, for example, no, this is, I don't do home, for example, and I'll use this because I, I don't do home based scenarios. Um, 
you know, Melody, I know you've been told that your shot on the internet's told you that your shotgun doesn't have enough capacity and it's going to be overrun while you're reloading in a home defense scenario. Yeah, if I, if I put you in a home defense scenario and then I have 20 role players and you just keep stacking them up and the, the 13th role player is climbing over the first 12, I guess not super realistic, right? Unless, you, unless you're engaged in cartel warfare, uh, you know, that's not a thing that's going to happen. So generally speaking, scenarios that are plausible, realistic, reasonable scenarios, um, and you can have one or two that are kind of fun just to test certain aspects of decision making. But if every scenario is just wild and far fetched, that's that's generally pretty poor. The other one, um, and this is kind of a poor to mediocre, is something that I, I've experienced in both my military and civilian uh, training career that I try to avoid is there in my in my, the scenarios that I've created. Um, there's not one magic answer. Because in life, there's typically not one magic answer. There's usually multiple suitable answers to a problem of, and of varying degrees of correctness. Like, you know, and we could, I could list all of them out and like, okay, this would probably be most ideal with the least downsides. This would probably still work, but you know, that you got to worry about this and so on and so forth. Now, there may be some, some definitely wrong answers, you know, like, yeah, first degree murder, somebody comes up to ask you for directions and you shoot them in the face. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say you probably made the wrong choice. But by and large, um, I try to create scenarios where people have multiple different pathways to success because in real life, you typically have multiple different pathways to success to either get out of the scenario or to use just enough force to, to stop the assault, uh, you know, however it might work out. Whereas some, some of the lesser force on force stuff that I've been to, there was some magic words or magic phrase or magic action that like, if you did anything other than this one specific thing, you died. Or you failed or whatever. And that's not that's not how real life works. So this is something that if you take in any classes with Craig Douglas, Craig Douglas always asked this class at the end of or at the beginning rather of of his uh, particularly his ECQCs, which is why aren't there more classes like this out there? Um so I think And again, Craig, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Craig. Yeah, Craig is a uh, mentor, and and I would hope I call him call him a friend. He's a really good dude, and the the godfather of open enrollment force on force training. Uh, somebody I trust uh, implicitly, well, explicitly. Um, so, I think there's a number of roadblocks to it. Um, I think that the number of trainers out there. Who have a lot of experience with it um because this like you know from the from the nra to various different shooting organizations if somebody's just like hey i want to become a handgun instructor there are a million pathways to like take take the basic class then take the instructor class uh and like hey here's how you run a range here's how you teach somebody to shoot like okay cool got it there, there is no such thing that exists within force on force um Typically, the organizations that are doing a lot of force on force are law enforcement and military, uh, but law enforcement and military have radically different missions than we do. And honestly, there's a there's a ton of bad force on force scenario training in the military and in law enforcement as well. Uh, and if you ask any cop or soldier, they'll tell you they've been they've been part of some of it. Um, so one, I think there's there's a, a much more limited number of people who have experience with scenario based training um, who think, hey, maybe I could offer this. Uh, I think that. Also, um, a lot of what does exist is of the like, all right, me and my three buddies are going to have 
plate carriers and helmets and AR-15, you know, airsoft AR-15s clearing a building, which is fun. It doesn't help you when you're getting carjacked the gas pump on a road trip. Um, and so I think a lot of the force-on-force force training that does exist is tactical fantasy camp stuff rather than realistic scenarios. And and frankly, I think it's um, people, the average person out there who's an insurance salesman from Des Moines, Iowa, like doesn't know it exists, doesn't know they need it, doesn't understand how it can help them. Um, and uh, and frankly, I think bang for your buck, you must have a minimum baseline of technical shooting skill to like carry a handgun in public responsibly. Um, however, I think that like bang for your buck quality force on force training um, can really like help you figure out like wh where you need to be spending your time going forward uh, from a training and budget perspective. Well, and that speaks to that, that you just mentioned the insurance salesman from Des Moines, Iowa, you know, they don't know what's out there. They don't know. And you kind of mentioned it a little bit about, you know, where to put your training dollars. But other than that, why should anybody go to force on force? So um, John Hearn, who's, you know, friend, uh, friend and colleague of, of you and I, um, he, he does this, uh, he's got this lecture that's like, uh, who wins, who loses, and why. And he has this fantastic diagram. Um, and it's it's basically like a, it's like a seesaw teeter-totter, and I'm paraphrasing it here. But um, it's funny because Americans, we're gadget people. We're gadget solution people, right? I have a problem. I want to buy a gadget, order it on Amazon. It'll be here tomorrow or the next day, and that solves my problem. That's just who we are and how we operate. And, um, and so you'll hear people who are like, oh, um, I bought a gun, you know, and they, they say I bought protection. Like, well, no, you brought a tool that can use correctly, provide protections, but like, it's not a, it's not a talisman. Right. And so, uh, and certainly people can get lucky, but within the holistic of all these self protection problems you can encounter, um, you know, if, if I put you into a, a life simulation uh, and had you have a hundred interactions with people that are contested, how many of those out of a hundred are going to require shooting at all? So probably, frankly, not most of them. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we get into arguments and disagreements with people all the time and don't end up having needing a gun. Now, when you need a gun, only a gun will do, uh, or only a lethal tool would do, and a gun is a, a pretty good one. Um, but at the end of the day, the ability to like draw a gun and shoot it at somebody at conversational distance is only one tiny thin slice of the entire self-defense problem. Um, you know, how do we avoid trouble? How do we deter trouble through our body language, posture, gait, um, you know, our, how we make eye contact with people, how we verbally interact with one another. Um, recognition, how do we recognize when there's trouble on the horizon? Because again, I'd rather recognize 10 seconds in advance that I'm about to be in a fight than no seconds in advance. And if I can recognize far enough in advance, I can just nope right back into my car and drive away. Uh, and so everybody's shooting is fun. Shooting's tons of fun. I love to shoot. And, and certainly, like I said, you need a baseline level of skill. But beyond that, the technical aspect of training is how, how to shoot that gun quickly and accurately, how to deploy that pepper spray, how to karate chop somebody, uh, you know, or, you know, grapple with them, whatever. The tactical aspect, and people overuse the word tactical, but at the end of the day, it's what technique to employ and when to employ it. Okay. Do I need to access a tool or do I just need to ask somebody to hold up right there? Like, 
what do I need to do in this moment to where I'm not using too much force, I'm not using too little force, I'm neither overreacting nor underreacting. And the first portion of my class kind of deep dives on the timing. When do I do what? What should I be looking for? What do I need to be worried about? Uh, and then the scenarios are an opportunity for you to practice all that and be like, oh, yeah, I probably should have done X, Y, Z earlier. Or, yeah, it probably wasn't time to do A, B, C yet. Um, because, frankly, I think the biggest thing people take away from these force-on-force -force classes than any good force-on-force -force class, you know, I, I, I'm proud of mine, but, you know, Craig's ECQC, is people come away from those and they're like, oh, like, yeah, I'd walked around with this thought in my mind that if X happened, I would do Y. But frankly, if I did that, I might end up in prison. Or, um, well, I'll just do this. And like, yeah, that actually probably would get me killed because I just tried to do it against another person who was actually trying to beat me, and it didn't work. And so um, force on force, I think, I don't think you got to do, you know, you, you don't have to make it a, you know, a second job or anything like that. But I think literally just exposing yourself to it, getting into a scenario or two, watching some other people go through scenarios um, will open your eyes to like how complex human interactions with people who might or might not mean you harm can be. Um, and like, it's cool to have a fast trigger finger, but there's a whole, whole, whole lot more to it than that. So, and this, this is something that I was just thinking about, about how particularly, and I've noticed it mostly since like 2020, the COVID era, maybe a little bit before then, the extreme sort of self-segregation that has been happening of people really not wanting to interact with people anymore. You know, like you said, they, we, we, we want everything to be delivered to our home. We don't want to have to deal with people. Um, you know, conflict resolution and even just interpersonal skills is something that is, I'm noticing it's harder and harder to get like my children and even people just a little bit younger than me to even interact with one another, much less interact with them when there's any kind of conflict. Um, you know, we are, we are the ghosting generation, you know, we would rather just leave than ever even tell someone, hey, I'm sorry, I'm not interested. Are, I'm assuming you, you've taught force on force for a while. Are you seeing a trend towards these kinds of, you know, interactions being more difficult or has there been any kind of trends? What have you seen as an instructor of force on force with interpersonal skills society wise? So and prior to, um, you know, without going too in depth, but so prior to my retirement and teaching this force on force class and other force on force type blocks, uh, I also, I taught another, uh, in the military, I taught a, a scenario-based course um, that was also focused very much on social fluency with specific objectives in mind um, of like, you, you're trying to accomplish certain things, but part of it's through you know, verbal engagement, social interaction, uh, and that kind of thing. And th that not, and not just pre-COVID, but like, frankly, you know, I'm, I'm talking to you, I'm looking at my iPhone uh, as we, as we uh, film this and um People tend to performance deteriorates under stress, right? Um, just in general, um, you know that if I asked you to, um, if I asked you to make dinner, you do you make dinner all the time. But if you had to make dinner while I was occasionally throwing darts into the kitchen uh, that might or might not hit you, like you know you might get some measurements wrong as you were making the you know the thought or whatever. Uh, and so likewise, the level of digital engagement that we have we only have 24 hours in a day that reduces our um, 
that reduces our face-to-face social interaction with other people. It just does. Uh, you know, young people are spending less time going and hanging out in public places where members of the opposite sex or the same sex hang out. Uh, and then, you know, walking up saying, hi, I'm Chris, you, you know, you want to dance and more time just swiping on an app. And so the problem is, is that if, if you, you generally, generationally, and even adults who just don't practice social interaction as much, if all of a sudden you're placed in a stressful situation or a, a quickly moving situation where you have to think quickly and act quickly to keep things from getting worse or, or whatever, um, your social skills are going to deteriorate. And next thing you know, you've said something foolish that pissed the other person off. And now you've taken what was kind of, would have been a tense interaction. And now the dude wants to fight you uh, or gal or whatever. And so, uh, yeah, I think that um, one of the important things, um, and, you know, we talk about this at length in, in managing unknown contacts portion of the course in Muck, um, where we teach, you know, we have each person develop kind of their own bespoke custom phrasing for different, easily predictable situations you spend enough time in public you're going to find yourself in this situation this situation this situation and when you encounter them we want some phrases to be practiced relaxed and competent and right on the tip of your tongue where you don't have to like search for the right words if this happens you can literally just oh i thought about this i have a pre-planned response and we pull it off the shelf dust it off and deliver it and it's relaxed authentic and confident and it makes the other person think oh okay cool I'm going to calm down or, oh, no, that person's not acting like food. I'm going to go select another target or whatever it may be. And so, yeah, if our social skills as a society are deteriorating. And then when you introduce social friction um, and stress, people tend to perform even more poorly. And so practicing, practicing very specific self-preservation social interaction uh, on a semi-regular basis is super beneficial so that when you're at the gas pump and you encounter a tense situation that, you know, we all encounter every once in a while, uh, you can just kind of immediately bust out the right answer instead of throwing the wrong one out there and putting yourself uh, in a bad spot. Is there anything that people can do on their own to help them with this? Or is this something you can only get in force on force or scenario-based training? Um, so. I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a broad answer, uh, and, and I'll give you a specific answer. Broadly speaking, uh, something that everybody that takes a private handgun lesson with me is going to hear in that first hour, um, a recommendation that has nothing to do with pistol shooting, and I'm going to tell them to read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale, uh, Dale Carnegie. And uh, it's a very old book. It's a very, you know, it's one of the best-selling books besides the Bible, like, you know, in American history, um, that frankly, I like making up statistics. So we're, we're going to say, I've made up totally non-scientific number, you know, 70% of all violent interactions in public with strangers is avoidable ego-related stuff. You cut me off, yell at me, I yell back at you, next thing you know, we're fighting, you know, and our kids are sitting in the car looking out the windows at these two random, just normal guys are fist fighting in the, you know, 7-Eleven parking lot. Um, that if, if we can learn how to get along with people. Uh, and learn how to, frankly, like like be mindful about how we interact with others. Uh, that'll reduce a lot of social friction. It will eliminate a lot of uh, confrontations that just don't need to exist. And then we can focus on the ones that truly are avoidable. You know, when you just happen to stumble in front of Michael Myers, you know, because you got unlucky. Um, so that's the broad answer. Uh, specific answer um, is just in maybe, I don't know, maybe this answer isn't specific. I think it is. Um, habitually practice empathy, okay? And, and people associate empathy with touchy-feely 
And it can be, certainly. There's cool empathy and there's hot empathy. Hot empathy is like, I'm feeling what you're feeling. You know, I'm watching a soap opera and I'm crying because she just got her heart broke, whatever it is. Um, but but there's also cool empathy where it's just like, okay, I'm going to put myself in this other person's uh, position and I'm going to try to see what they're seeing, hear what they're hearing and view the world as they would view it. Uh, and this is, this is useful on a couple of fronts. One of them being that at times that does cause me to be like, you know what, I want to get mad and yell at this person and be like, hey, look, man, maybe they're having a bad day. They're another human being just like me. So I'm just going to calm things down and be like, hey, sorry, buddy. Sorry about that. My bad. And, you know, hopefully they calm down and we both go our separate ways and we don't have a violent interaction in a public place. But also, and this goes back to same with home defense, um, put yourself in situations where you're like, okay, I'm going to the mall. When I get to the mall, if I were a human predator sitting in the mall parking lot waiting for a target to come along for me to victimize, what would I be looking for? Where would I want them to park? Where would I – and you don't have to make yourself crazy with this, but just literally, okay, when I pump gas, from the perspective of somebody who wants to rob me while I'm pumping gas or carjack me or just take my purse, like what would make it easier for them or harder for them to do that? And, then, and so empathy is a lot more than just feeling how people are feeling. So habitually practicing empathy and putting yourself in the position, the, the mindset of, of other people, um, frankly, will, will help you recognize ahead of time, a lot of times, you know, where there are vulnerable spots before you get to them and you find yourself painted into a corner, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does. So what has been one of your biggest takeaways as a student of Force on Force? What? Um. There's a paradox with, and not just, I mean, this thing is like both in force on force and in real world violent encounters, there, there is a paradox that, that if, if you can wrap your mind around this, this is, you know, half the battle we'll say again, made up statistics. Um, and that is to say that you need pre-planned responses to certain stimuli, right? Um, that if, if right now, uh, I don't know, but what started flying through my the window, you know, here in my house, sitting here in my chair and being like, huh, I should come up with a strategy for this. Like, no, I need to do something immediately. Um, and, and so having immediate responses planned for various possible outcomes is essential. Um, but you can't become so married to them. Um, it, that's basically a life preserver to hang on to when you don't know what to do to buy yourself some time to use your head because something I see in a lot of uh, I've experienced myself and, you know, certainly back in the day and I see it in a lot of attendees is I'll teach them like, okay, first we're going to do this. If this happens, we'll do this, then we'll do this then we'll do this. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, those steps, you know, step one, step two, step three are to buy you time to let your brain kind of catch up to what's going on. So you can make an informed decision uh, having bought, 10 seconds to contemplate the situation. And so uh, what I have learned about myself is that if I go into a scenario married to a specific course of action, we're like, okay, if this guy does this, I'm going to do this. Just luck and life says that he's not going to do that. <laughs> and then all of a sudden when he does, when he does the other thing that I'm not prepared for, and I'm still like mentally kind of stuck on, well, like, no, he was supposed to do this. Um, and so so the biggest thing that I've learned in Force on Force is having pre-planned responses is essential, but you can't, you've got a datum, you can't marry them. Um, and so knowing when to stick to the plan and when to deviate from the plan uh, is the most important thing. And frankly, there's only one way to get better at that, and that's practicing. Uh, awesome. And, yeah. 
Awesome. Well, so is there anything else that you would like to add either about your home defense class or about the force on force class before we wrap up? Uh, no, that, that is, uh, that's all about those. Okay. So tell me about what maps is. Uh, sure. So that is, that is my mental agility preparation and planning skills class. Um, this is my, uh, frankly, my favorite class that I teach because I'm a nerd. Um, however, it is probably the one that's like the, the least understood by kind of the general public. Um, this class uh, and my concept for this class, this, this is not a shooting class. This is a eight hour, uh, you know, one day, you know, plus or minus an hour here or there uh, seminar, essentially, uh, you know, typically done in a classroom setting. There's a discussion presentation. We have some role playing exercises that we do. Um, and, uh, you know, we make a day of it. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's something you can do, especially like if it's super hot, you know, dead of summer, dead of winter, when people don't want to go outside and train, this is something that you can get and increase your skills. It is essentially my presentation on everything I've learned over the course of my life from special operations from, you know, 20 years of open enrollment attendance, uh, in, engaging in, in numerous violent encounters myself overseas. This is what I've learned about like how to be mentally agile, how to adequately prepare yourself, both from a mindset standpoint and from a skill standpoint. And the the planning principles uh that that will make you a more competent self uh, self-protector self-preserver and you know of yourself and your loved ones um i mentioned during the home defense class that within special operations like one of the special for army special forces strengths is um specifically kind of analyzing the mission whatever the mission might be uh breaking down like okay so to accomplish the mission here are the things that need to happen how do we accomplish those things and, and working backwards? And rather than, you know, like my home defense class, like, okay, in home defense, here's how you do those things. Uh, in force on force, basically, hey, when you're out in public, here's the problems you're facing. Here's the techniques you can employ and how I, you know, and I basically teach people mentally how to, to deal with that specific context. MAPS is frankly, if you took this class, um, then you could you know, with deliberate thought and training experience, like, but you, you could figure out all the other contexts. This is the, here is a way of thinking about self-defense, thinking about um, risk management, thinking about contingency planning. Like, okay, in my life, what are the things, what are the risks that I have to mitigate? What are the contingencies that I need to have a plan for? Um, this is rather than teaching specific techniques, this is a, look, here's how I think about being hard to kill. Uh, being hard to surprise uh, and and making myself and my family less vulnerable. Here's just a general philosophical approach, and you can take this template and apply it to your life and apply it to your context. Uh, and it's basically rather than deep dive on like the opposition and deep dive on on criminals or deep dive on techniques. This is a deep dive on yourself and how you think and how you behave uh, and and what you can do to make yourself more mentally agile, more prepared, uh, and, you know, develop better plans for whatever it is in your life that you think you might need to plan for. So the term, and this is something that's really interesting to me. So the term mental agility implies that there is also mental rigidity, right? Because uh, uh, agility lends itself to being flexible, being, you know, able to kind of move with, with, with the flow, I guess. How would you, I guess, help someone identify 
where they are already on that spectrum. How rigid are you in your thinking versus how agile you already are? And how would you help someone assess that? Or is hmm. that something that you can assess? Oh, no, I, it is certainly something you can assess. Um, what's interesting is, is much like physical fitness, um, there can be a modal component to it as well, which, uh, so like in physical fitness, a, a power lifter, like a professional power lifter is, is very mentally tough. Like you don't, you don't squat a thousand pounds without being, and train to squat a thousand pounds without being mentally tough. But if you take that same, and most power lifters just don't have a lot of like long, long range endurance. So if I suddenly take that, that power lifter that squats a thousand pounds, uh, and then ask him to run a marathon, that mental toughness isn't necessarily going to translate. So mental agility, um, there are certain people, like we, we all know the guy who, uh, and I, I wish I were this guy that, you know, buddies are talking trash because they root for a different sports team. And there's that one guy who's always got the really witty comeback. And then, you know, me, like two and a half days later, I'm like, ah, you know, and I wish I'd thought of a thing. <laughs> and so that's one kind of mental agility. That doesn't mean that dude's going to be great in a gunfight. Right. Um, so one, there, there is a modal aspect of it, but generally speaking, yeah, some people are more mentally agile than others. Some people are more mentally rigid than others. How can you assess that? I mean, how can you assess that in, um, in this context we're talking about? I would say that's very much where like uh, force on force training, like we discussed earlier, can help you out. Um, because there are, there are people, you know, just like the whole high responder, low responder thing. Some people tend to just like act before they've even really fully thought it out, which can be good and can be bad. Some people tend to you know, deliberate too long when they should be taking action. Uh, and sometimes you have to put yourself in even fictional scenarios to figure that out. Um, but the, the big thing with, with mental agility uh, as it relates to um, self-preservation, self-protection, is that if you talk to people who've been victims of crime, what you will often hear is like, you know, they saw the person coming towards them with the knife, but they like, oh, I can't believe this is happening to me. Or why are you doing this? Or, you know, like Tom Givens, famed instructor, you know, often references when he, he back as, and as a peace officer, he would interview, you know, people who had been stabbed, people who had been shot. They were mentally rigid and that like they'd never been shot at or stabbed before. Therefore, they never would be. And then when like a dude was walking towards them with an axe or whatever, um, they couldn't uh, adapt to the rapidly changing conditions. And I think the secret sauce of mental agility, though, is there's going to be a natural level. But one of the ways that you you build mental agility is by introducing yourself to um, novel concepts, novel situations. Now, you can't really go out and like intentionally, well, I wouldn't advise going out and intentionally getting robbed over and over and over to, you know, <laughs> to, to demystify that novel stimuli. Uh, on the other hand, uh, literally just mental reps. Um, every time you read a news story about somebody getting robbed in an ATM or you see a video of somebody getting robbed in an ATM, you can ask yourself, like, what would I have done in that situation? What was what was probably the right move? What was the wrong move? Like, were they, um, did they overreact? Did they underreact? Um, and then the, and then think about that and like, okay, I'm going to the ATM. It's at night. Uh, it's kind of a bad part of town. Like, if this happens, if that happens, what I'm going to do. That's how you build mental agility um, by not starting from nothing, from a blank slate. Um, so yeah, as far as assessing it, I think it's probably too mode specific because the person who's very mentally agile on a basketball court as a point guard, uh, if you put them on ice skates and made him a hockey player, uh, a lot of his mental agility would go out the window because he was having to think real hard about skating, which is a whole other discussion, which is why technical skill does matter because knowing how to skate 
uh, makes you a lot more mentally agile when you're on the ice. That's that's probably very true. So you were talking about you know, kind of the, the basically the role your imagination plays, right? You know, so you you read about the scenario, or you're going to the ATM and you're thinking, hey, how would this play out? Or and you know, what's what does good look like versus what does suboptimal look like? Is there a balance between can you imagine it going too wrong, and do you can you kind of set yourself up for failure? What happens? Is there such a thing as only imagining it going too right? Is there a balance there? What would you say? Um, yeah, that's. I mean, that's. Uh, yeah, there, there's no um, there's no definitive answer to that question. Uh, at the end of the day, there's there's a difference between like mental practice reps uh, and contingency planning, because from a from a mental practice rep standpoint, like we don't want to. Uh, picture ourselves missing a pistol shot or like I would never want a basketball player to picture themselves missing the game winning three pointer or a golfer to picture himself slicing it into the uh, uh, slicing it into the trees because then you are literally practicing failure. Your brain doesn't know the difference between, you know, real and imagine and mental practice reps are, are, are very impactful. On the other hand, when it comes to contingency planning, um, it is very unlikely that ninjas are going to spring from my ceiling. Uh, I'm probably wasting my time on that one, right? Um, but most people um, make one or two mistakes when it comes to, I guess, imagining calamity is either um, they don't at all. Um, and, and not just calamity too. That's the thing is, is that they're like, okay, uh, if seven dudes in ski masks with body armor and AR-15s kicked in my front door and it's like, okay, is that a thing that's ever happened in the state you live in ever? And if yes, how many times did was it did it was it not gang and drug related warfare? Um, so that's probably I can probably put that the the ninjas and you know and ski masks and AR-15s I can probably put that on the back burner. Um, so either people uh, don't imagine anything at all, like they literally have never considered that somebody might rob them in their church parking lot. I'm coming out of church. Nobody would ever rob me in a church parking lot. Like, that's still a parking lot. They're still in adjacent neighborhoods. So, yeah, it could happen. Um, or they, yeah, they they imagine wildly unrealistic stuff. Um, because certainly I want to ask myself, if I hear gunfire and I look around and I see a man with a gun, um, like, okay, is it possible he's a bad guy? Yes. Is it possible that he is a cop? Yes. Is it possible that he is a, another good guy like me who just happened to get his gun out before I did? Uh, and I need to like take a real pregnant pause before I shoot somebody who's not pointing a gun directly at me. Cause what if they're another good Samaritan trying to help um, and thinking through those scenarios. So the thing is, is I don't think that there's a magic answer on how to not over or underthink it. It's more of a studying where you live, your environment, what kind of things, what kind of events are more, uh, more likely to occur. Um, because yeah, I think most people are either just not thinking about it at all, or they're using action movies as their frame of reference instead of like the metro section of their local newspaper. Yeah, no, and that's and the reason I kind of think about that is sometimes I think about you got your Debbie Downers who who kind of think that everything that's possibly bad is going to happen is just going to happen. Or you've got, on the other hand, your people who kind of have almost like a hero complex, like everything that's going to happen, it's just going to, it's just going to magically work out. Like, you know, what, what do I have to say? I've got the shotgun by my bed and that's all I need. 
Um, and that kind of speaks to what you were talking about, where they just, they fail to think about how things can go wrong, but you don't want them to go down too far down that road. And like you said, devolve into ninjas. Um, right. So what is, I do you think, the most valuable takeaway from your maps class for, for attendees? So the, the key to mental agility in the self-defense context is identifying reasonable risks, um, risks that you may see. I don't even want to say likely to see. Uh, reasonable risks um, that you that you may see, determining realistic, practical ways to mitigate those risks, like making your preparations, like, you know, buy a gun, learn to shoot the gun, get licensed to carry the gun if, if applicable in your state, uh, and then carry the gun on a regular basis, carry pepper spray. Like, what problem are you trying to solve? Develop your methods for solving it, uh, and then implement those and go live your life. Um this class, you know, it's eight hours. We spend a lot of time talking about the way the human mind works, you know, self-image, subconscious, you know, all kinds of psychology and stuff. Um, but it's all practical with one goal in mind, to make you better prepared so you can relax and enjoy your kids and watch the old couple at the park who've been married for 50 years uh, and see the, you know, the little boy who's, who's, you know, his dad's a hero and he's trying to get his dad's attention and he's doing something funny. Uh, you know, when you're at the grocery store or whatever. This is not a class to teach paranoia. It's just the opposite. Um, I'm trying to help people figure out a way to say, okay, what are my priorities? What do I need to worry about? Okay, cool. Having worried about it, what am I going to do about it? All right. I now have these plans in place. I've made my preparations. And having done that, I'm ready to respond to those things if they occur. And I'm going to go to my son's softball game or, you know, whatever. And uh, And so, yeah, identify risks mitigate the risks, and live your life. And that's what it's really all about. I like it. Is there anything else you want to add about it before we wrap up? Um, nope. I guess about it. Awesome. So do you want to tell us what classes you have coming up? Yeah, so uh, just the rest of this calendar year, I'm going to be in Brookville, Ohio, October 21st. Uh, that day I will be teaching the home defense class. Um, then the following day, October 22nd, also in Brookville, Ohio, I'll be teaching my force on force adaptive skills training, which would be the force on force scenario stuff. So if you show up for that weekend, you'll be getting a little, here's what to do inside the home. Here's what to do outside the home. Then, uh, the next, uh, couple weeks after that, I'll be in Mansfield, Ohio, teaching my mental agility preparation and planning skills class. Um, and that'll be November 3rd, then November, uh, then it'll be a Friday, then Saturday, November 4th. I will be also in Mansfield, Ohio, teaching once again my force on force adaptive skills training. Uh, December 2nd, I will be in Lincoln, Texas at uh, Carl Rand's uh, absolutely outstanding uh, KR training facility down in Central Texas, about halfway between College Station and Austin. Um, and I'll be doing mental agility preparation and planning skills there. And then December 3rd, which will be a Sunday, we'll be doing our force on force adaptive stereo training there. So I'll be in the, in the Midwest in Ohio twice in October, November, and then in December, I'll be down in Texas. And you know, dates, awesome. more more dates coming up in twenty twenty four. Absolutely. 